Hello there, welcome back to Temporary Fandoms. We are still dealing with McCluskey. You have been listening to Chris Whitby talking talking you through the albums and still with Nick and myself are Nick Taylor. Hello, Nick. Hello. Uh, Sheree Amore. Hello, Sheree. Hello. And Chris Whitby. Hey, Chris. Hello. Okay, so as I said, I mean, I had no idea who McCluskey were. Um, Future of the Left had been on my radar a little bit, which is the fu- what they become in a future episode. Um, I could have loads of excuses, like I was out of the country or something, but I guess they just were not the type of band I was listening to in that sort of period. Um, so what we're talking about Millennium, is that right? About around about when did they when did they start off, Chris? Yeah, I think they kind of became McCluskey '99, maybe, and then the first album. Uh, was released in 2000 but i would say they were slightly later than that when they kind of became more of a known band in the kind of wider indie rock scene but yeah 2000s when they started first album and i, I kept getting confused because they, they kept being referred to as a welsh band yet the lead singer is not welsh am, am i going crazy I, uh... I think he's from newcastle right i think he was born yeah, in newcastle yeah. moved to yeah. and then he's in then now they're based in cardiff so he's kind of like Cardiff by association, I suppose, will be the and a long time res- residential nation. Um, as a precursor to all of this, before we start going around the, the table, um, I try to do the thing where you listen to stuff and analyze it, and I found it really hard to analyze anything that we, we're going to be talking about while I was sober and walking to the bar. On my way back from ba- the bar, everything seemed totally different. So. Yeah, it's going to be a tricky one. Um, so, Chris, um, in your intros, you talked about how this was the first band that really did anything for you. It's the band that you uh, spoke to your wife about later on when they become Future of the Left. How did you get into McFly? McFly. How did you get into McFly? <laughs> I, uh, um, I think I said in the intro, I heard them for the first time on John Peel. So they played Lightsaber Cock Sucking Blues on John Peel, which is actually on the next album. So let's not... Uh, you know, let's um, go too much into that one. But I heard them McCluskey do Dallas, basically, and then went backwards to this album. But um, yeah, I was just driving home. Well, I wasn't driving. My dad was driving, to be clear. Uh, but one night, and they um, played Lightsaber to Cocksucking Blues on the radio. And um, yeah, I can still vividly remember it. It's like, I know there's like one of those classic cliches of the first time you hear a band or the first time you hear a song. But I do really vividly remember it and that feeling that, um, you know, rushing out to this shop in Scunthorpe, which thankfully had it, and uh, yeah, I just loved it. I can remember the paper of the booklet that's in it. I can remember like everything about it. And it's just, uh, yeah, they're a band that, yeah, just really grabbed me. I don't know what it is about them. And it's interesting what you say about not analyzing them because they're strangely not a band that I've really analyzed or gone deep over the year. It's more of a surface, just pure enjoyment. Do you know what I mean? Like they're a band that just make me happy. And yeah, simple as that, really. Okay. I mean, obviously we, we could talk influences till the cows come home and at some point you'll pull out your little book which you have every episode of thing yeah there we go um i mean obviously there's a post-hardcore thing we've had a previous episode about number girl and obviously they were sort of taking post-hardcore to japan um you could i could say pixies i could say fugazi none of it sort of seems to fit perfectly i guess i mean sheree i mean where does this band fit in that scene for you? Are they different from their peers? Are they doing something new? What? 
I've got a lot of notes about them being different from their peers. Yeah, hundred percent. I've I've said basically, I find it mad that they're doing this whole like American post hardcore, and their Welsh peers are stereophonics at this point. And I know <laughs> yeah. that Falcus makes a few comments about that, and too right. My goodness, like I don't want to get onto the the records, you know, that we're going to come on to, but um. Yeah, for me, there's like a sound of a revolt going and that comes stronger and stronger throughout the discography. Um, fun fact as well, if this is true, Chris, um, Falcus and Matt meeting at Anglian Windows. My brother also works for Anglian Windows and he is a big McCluskey fan. Oh, wow. So yeah. there we yeah. go. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I think a friend of mine used to work with Falcus yeah. in admin for a graveyard or oh. something like that as well. Yeah, so it's like wow. a weird admin job wow. in Wales. Yeah, yeah. We'll come to that later. That's uh, back to my anecdote about me. Yeah. But yeah, got a lot of admin very, jobs, that lad. Very different from their peers. And also, I think all of these records, even though I guess similarly to Chris, I knew Lightsaber, Cocksucking Cock Blues came in at that point, but they were just sort of in the peripheries for me. I didn't go deep into their catalogue. And oh my word, I'm so delighted that I did. Um, it's very, very up my alley. And it feels like they were there throughout, like m myself and Fliss, fellow Temp fans, mm. podcast guest um we were in a band and there were bands on the scene in norwich that just sound like this band so i kind of mm -hmm. want to message them being like you must have liked mccluskey these underdogs because the whole like quivering <laughs> vocals and the shouts and the yelps it was all there totally yeah um the shouting and the yelping was what it to be honest it took me a while first album i was just like oh it's annoying me a little bit and it did but oh, work, did work, worked <laughs> its way in somehow into somewhere um before we go through sort of track by track um nick i mean you have a you have a podcast about teenage bands um would this be the archetypal teenage band for you i mean we've discovered while we were planning this that actually they're older than we think they were thought they were and they're sort yeah. of they're basically the same age as other Nick and myself, which makes us makes me feel rather old. Um, Nick, how about them for you? I mean, is this the archetypal teenage band for you? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, there is that sort of uh, there's a, that real sense of just kind of freedom and and just abandon that that comes that comes from their music. I mean, I think that I've been similar. I've been similar to you, you and I. I was I, I was a little bit familiar with Future the Left stuff, but I had never heard a note of McCluskey music before I started embarking on this. Uh, and um, and it has been it's been a really great uh, sort of it's been a really great experience, but also a really great cathartic experience. I've spent I have to admit I spent I do intend to spend all of this week really diving into their stuff, uh, and then um, and then I got uh, noticed that I had to do a job interview um, at the at the very end of this week that required me to spend uh, an entire week listening to nothing but but classical music uh, for my work. So I've, so I've just been, uh, so I, so I spent five solid days listening to, uh, you know, string quartets and, and, and opera. And then, uh, and, and then as soon as that interview was finished, I immediately dived into uh, my pain and sadness is more sad and, pain, and painful than yours. So uh, that's been a nice little, that's been a nice little contrast for me. Uh, and then, yeah. And then the weekend has just got more shoutier and shoutier as, uh, as things have, progressed um but uh so just uh, in terms of you know for the people that i've been speaking to for my uh my podcast like there i think the unifying theme has just been this kind of you know this complete freedom to just uh just 
go along with and meld a, a bunch as, as many different styles as possible and just kind of uh and uh and this sort of yeah this sort of like no this lack of conscious consciousness in terms of in terms of when they're creating something and i think that really shines through in all of mccluskey's stuff you know all of these songs that are the amount of songs they've got that are just sort of that are under two minutes and just sort of, and there's and there's so much in each in each one um and uh yeah that's it's been really it's been really great yeah we've talked before on this on the pod about uh good albums uh having two minute 35 second songs or or 10 songs in a half an hour and how apart from when chris loves long can which is I'm never going to let him forget about. Uh, the short albums are the ones that for some of us, particularly with, of this style, it's great. It's like, yeah. oh, 10 minutes, done. I can have a cup of tea and it's I, it's still not on 45 minutes. Um, Track-wise, I mean, oh, God, there's so many long titles. What, white Liberal and White Liberal Action sort of stood out for me. And weirdly, Fly Smoke, although it didn't sound like the rest of the album, but I, maybe it stood out because it didn't sound like the rest of the album. I noticed with Fly Smoke recently that I'm not sure this would go down well, but it really sounds like Idlewild. And I've never noticed that before. It sounds exactly like Idlewild. Mm. Uh, but let's keep that to ourselves, maybe, actually. Um, Nick, um, how, I mean, obviously, I mean, this is what we do on the podcast. We, we go through these things. Um, how familiar were you with McCluskey before we did it on the Facebook group back in the day? Or you did it on the Facebook group back in the day? Um, that's this Nick, right? Me. Um, yeah. So we were Nick and Nick T. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I, 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 it seems to be a, a common theme here. Basically, I didn't really know them until Future of the Left, um, and I first became aware of them because of a friend of mine saying that they're playing this gig. Come and see them. I think you'll like them, and I did. But weirdly, so that was that was to be about 2012, 2013, and for one reason or another, I still didn't actually go and explore their records after that, even though I, it was a great gig. So it wasn't until 2018 when we listened to them in the group that I actually went back and listened to McCluskey and all of Future of the Left. Um, and it's one of the things I find strange about them is because I really enjoy them when I'm listening to, but they're one of those bands I sort of then somehow forget about and don't listen to again until I've got a very specific reason to, like doing this. And I don't know why that is, because they're great. I mean, def- there's definitely the sort of, there's sort of a punch and there's a raw energy that comes in. And obviously lyrically, which we'll talk about a bit more in a bit, things stand out. But there were some I'd listen to it and go, oh yeah, I enjoyed that. And I couldn't remember a single track. I just remember that I enjoyed that 35 minutes, but I couldn't rem- I couldn't have placed a single track or a single lyric until I went back and had to listen to them a, a couple more times. Um, anybody, Cherie, what are your standouts on this one? I mean, it's a bit of a mismatch of an album, but. It is, and you'll be unsurprised to know that I'm leaning heavily towards the riff section. So <laughs> I, I heard, because I, well, I'm going to make a huge omission now. I've not really listened to Fugazi before, so um, I didn't know that reference. For me, it was like pure, simple incesticide Nirvana, and that's like such a great mm. record for me. Yeah. So I was very happy to hear that. Mm. So but I thought both singles were awesome. I know that's a very predictable answer, but I am a fan of a short, sharp, riff-heavy track. Um, so Joy huge joy for me um the riff in rock versus single parents as well it's massive it's massive it's so good um yeah so i'd say those guys yeah just had like um rice is nice has that sort of like um sliver um going to grandma's that kind of chorus for me felt, felt so similar mm-hmm. yeah totally totally um yeah th- interesting about the nirvana thing because i didn't hear it the first time and then when I, particularly when, and we'll talk about McCluskeyism later, when I was hearing tracks again, 
that's when I sort of noticed it a little bit more. Um, okay, so I mean, that was the first album. It it was a calling card. I mean, it was a, it was a bit of mismatch. It wasn't it wasn't the stereophonics. But going into the post millennium, um, the music scene in the UK was very. It was looking it was looking stateside quite a lot. Everybody wanted the White Stripes or the Strokes or or, or whomever, which may be why they sort of slipped me by. But then they seemed to go. McCluskey does Dallas. Sorry, McCluskey do Dallas, um, <laughs> which was what two thousand and two, Chris. Yeah, 2002, exactly. And they've got Steve Albini in. Yeah, I, I, I don't really know much about how that happened, but I think it's simply they weren't approached or anything like that. I think it's a case of they just saved up and they decided they wanted to work with Steve Albini. Simple as that. I think they just went out to Chicago and recorded it with him. Yeah, it's quite a, it's a, and it's a match made in heaven, in my opinion, as well. How much do you have to save to get Steve Steve Albini? Is it sort of like you just put some money in a pot and occasionally you go, oh, it's the Albini fund. I mean, how does that work? It's just when you get a bit of shrapnel. You know, you've got 50p left from the shopping, you stick it in a fund, and then eventually oh, that's enough to fight Chicago. The, the, the Albini jar. <laughs> yeah. 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 So how, how full's your got... Albini jar, Chris? Uh, I mean, I've probably got two uh, two tracks. Yeah. Maybe a seven-inch. Okay. I haven't got an album yet. Yeah. yeah. Might have an EP by the end of the year. I've got one of those Blue Peter things in my head now, like where they're sort of, they've got the giant target and every week they'd go back on Blue Peter and they go, oh, we're 30% towards Albini. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, yeah. so we've got McCluskey do Dallas. Um, I mean, this is louder, it's it's ruder, it's tighter. Um, there's a thing for me that they sort of do through a few albums with, which is sort of a repetitive slow riff and then sing and then come back to the same riff and then sing like the riff sort of never ended. Um, I think Day of the Dead Ringers was a high, was one of those that sort of does that. Um, before I hand it over, his voice was bugging me, and I didn't know why. And I could hear the John Lydon, and I could hear the Black Francis, and all of the references. And, the, and I, there was one that I couldn't place, and I and it was Young Knives. If anyone yeah. knows Young Knives, <laughs> young knives. Wow, yeah. and he's sort of screaming, "That decision was mine!" Like, oh, like over and over. <laughs> Exactly. And the second I realized, it was like this math, massive cathartic moment. All the energy was, I was like, there it was. That's who it, like, that's who it reminds me of. Um, okay, so obviously you've talked before, and we're going to go straight back to um, Chris. When you heard Lightsaber Cock Sucking Blues in the car, how did your dad re- respond? Uh, I think he might have just pretended it wasn't happening. You know, your dad kind of goes, oh, we've got to turn off for like Reading now or something. I can't listen to this anymore. Do you know what I mean? Just ignored it. Oh, <laughs> oh Leeds have just scored a goal. Um, yeah, let me just tune into Radio Sorry 5. Sorry about Yeah, your mum's your wrong. Sorry, I'm going to deal, deal with that. Or did he, did he not just say, wait wait a minute, this is this is, um, this is is a bottle surfers. Uh, Lee, Lee Harvey sleeps. No, hang on. The Shah sleeps in Lee Harvey's grave. Can you edit that so it makes sense, Ewan? <laughs> I don't think it's possible. Do you want to try again? <laughs> I can do another take at it. Sure, sure. Go for it. Go for it. I was, I was just me trying to channel Chris's dad and I got confused. Um, okay, so Nick, obviously I'll edit this out. I won't edit this out. Nick, yeah, do you want another go at that? <laughs> butthole surfers. You were going to say it reminded you of a butthole surfers. Yeah, but song. basically, um, it's just they've both got long, complicated titles, so I'm struggling to say it all. Basically, Lightsaber Cocksucking Blues is The Shah Sleeps in Lee Harvey's Grave by The Butthole Surfers. I did it! Yay! Wow, I, I've never I've never heard you say that before, Nick. That's a really interesting observation. Really, yeah, 
Really great one. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Wake me up when um, you get on to the next album. <laughs> oh yeah, you just you just go to sleep. Um, okay, so we've got what? We've got To Hell With Good Intentions, Lightsaber, Coxic and Blues, Fuck Me's Band were the ones that sort of really stood out for me. I mean, this was just a really good, fun, tight, ball to the floor riff album, right? I mean, lyrically, there's a lot of sneers and a lot of targets. Um, Nick T, um, what do you think in terms of progression was going on here? I mean, obviously they've got the Albini Fund to pay for something, but... Is that all that changed? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like you said, really. It's all just it's all just much tighter and and slicker, I think. Uh, and I mean, I think by the time you by the time you get to this album, I I I do feel like with things like "To Hell with Good Intentions" and stuff, they re- they really are thinking about not not things that are going to be sort of radio friendly and kind of push through to the push through to the mainstream, but they they clearly are thinking about what's going to work as they they're really mastering that thing that that. That Falcus does so well in, in in all in all of his work, which is just that perfect uh, that perfect melding of just the really loud screaming stuff and and something with a real uh, pop sensibility that just makes it so irresistible. I think. Um, and I mean, I wonder because I know that I know that McCluskey do Dallas is it was sort of considered. It is. Am I right, Chris, in thinking that it is kind of considered their their best album? Was it their most kind of critically? acclaimed album but how did it do kind of commercially did it did it did it shift much or get much sort of in the way of kind of right mainstream radio play i'm not sure about how much like radio play but it's definitely the one that's kind of considered yeah the go-to they're like um not landmark not a very nice phrase but you know like they're kind of that's the album if you can listen to one of mccluskey it's that one and i'd even say probably across all of his back catalog that falcus's back catalog that would be the one yeah definitely whether it did well in the you know in a commercial sense i don't know but i think that that's kind of something that's plagued them throughout i think is the sense that you've got this real like rabid like cult following and people really think it's like the greatest you know this one of the greatest albums of all time but it always just sits at a certain level and there's a few bands around that time i think that have that but i don't think it was I don't think the lack of commercial acclaim is what ended them, but I don't think it was really no, of course. pushing, wasn't really pushing them higher either. So, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it's interesting with something like, with, with like, say, with Cocksucking Blues, like, you know, with, this is around the time, if you think about bands, bands like the White Stripes first emerging with that, when they first came out with that really raw um, mix of, of garage rock and, and blues, that, a track like that, I can imagine a track like that actually fitting really well onto their first album, actually. Um, so it, it they it almost sounds like on this album they are they they almost are kind of fitting into that to that kind of indie to to that side of the indie explosion of the early noughties. So it's almost a surprise that it that it didn't do uh, that it it didn't do as well as it did. But what was was the scene at that time? And we talked a bit how they were looking westwards. Who were the indie peers uh, and the at, 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 in the sort of two thousand and twos? Chris, yeah, because I think that's interesting. Because for me, that, that I'm not sure you would say they were in that scene, but I the bands I kind of associate them with are other bands I was really into at the time, like Ruben, Million Dead. Hell is for Heroes, that kind of, even Biffy Clyro. Like, I don't think they're the same, but the level they were at yeah. at that time of that kind of British take on a very American sound. Like, I think McCluskey are very different, as um, Sheree was saying earlier. I think they're very different to what they're, the people they're around. But I think 
for me, their major contemporary would be someone like Ruben, that kind of band that's just doing massive sing-along choruses, but not it's just got an edge to it, which means it doesn't ever quite go over into the kind of broader thing. And you try a song to try and break over, like, again, Ruben did it, but you never quite get there. And I don't know what was holding them back. Both bands, something just doesn't really mesh. Um, Cherie, I'm going to ask you, ask you a question. I mean, we've, we've just been talking about how, obviously, uh, there's huge American influences, but they've, they've, they've taken those influences across the Atlantic and, and created a, a British version, a British sound of that. Do As somebody who was in a band who had various influences that were transatlantic as well, do you think it's a conscious decision to, to anglicise it uh, or to try and do something different from just sounding like a, a, a clone? Or do you think it just sort of seeps in? That's a good question. Well, without bigging up my band too much, I do think that Fliss and I had a similar approach to Falcus. When you were talking previously, you and about like the sneers and the asides, we used to call our genre gossip rock because we would just write all these observational songs about people that we hated. And um, I think there's that vibe in that. And it was funny with Nick T talking about having that sort of quite commercial sound of the guitars um, and kind of white stripe garage rock, but his lyrics that Falcus is saying is just, you mm. know, tearing it apart. Mm. I love Collagen Rock. It was my absolute favorite. Yeah. I think the riff is so like needly and pointed. And the line about one of those bands got paid that night, I felt that in my core. And I was like looking around, <laughs> you know, seeing who's got the good gear, who's got like a bigger paycheck than we did or whatever, you know. I just, I really, really related to that hard, like tight budgets, expensive fuel, being on the road as a DIY band. So even though they might sound like they've stepped up production wise, I think there's still some of that sort of droll, acerbic you know, <laughs> angst mm -hmm. that he's nestled in there. And that's probably a British thing. That's probably mm. that spin is exactly that, you know, keeping those hardcore roots, but having that sort of sly aside to say, like, this is what's going on here. Yeah, I, I think that's it. I mean, could you imagine uh, any sort of any American post hardcore band uh, with riffs, but then, and you know, just as easy, it could, could expect them to have a track about the local celebrity opening the Christmas lights being a bit of a dick one Saturday. You know, you, it wouldn't be out of place in this context, but it would have been out of place. You wouldn't imagine Rollins doing that back in the day. I hey, oh, should have done. He so should have done. I must admit, the one time I saw the Rollins band, I saw the Rollins band in about, I don't know, I think it was 1998. And, and I remember all I was thinking at the time was like, you're so angry, just tell us a joke. Because <laughs> <laughs> I did him do his spoken word thing as well and knew he could be quite droll. It just didn't, didn't mesh for me. I just wanted him to, you know, chill out a bit, tell us a few gags. Maybe it's just yeah. me. <laughs> I mean, he's, he had his droll side, did Rollins. But also, he's incredibly small. Like, he's really short. Really? Um, I think it was about it 90... Hear. I think, oh, fine. I think it was about 90, I don't know, 91, 92. I, he was playing in Wolverhampton and I was coming out of work. I was, what, 18? And suddenly this really short guy walks past me. And by really short, I mean up to my like my nipples, you know. I mean, I, was, I looked <laughs> down at him and I was like, oh my God, it's Rollins. And, <laughs> and I was like, Jesus. And I was, yeah, I mean, Rollins is short. I mean, people know that, right? I mean, you know, that's probably why he's got stuff that he's insecure about anyway <laughs> that's why he's I so angry going with that tom, tom york Chris. also um also quite surprisingly modest in height i think the interesting thing about the lyrics and going back to the british thing is there's a kind of way that he uses that goes pop cultural references 
which in the wrong hands could be horrendous, like really, really don't work. But if you think about on the first album, you've got reference to like French and Saunders. And on this one, you've got a reference to like Danny Baker. And there's something about it which is like so universal that um, the people they were, you know, they're, they're playing to will know those people were. But there's a knowingness that's kind of just funny about it. I don't know. There's, some, there's just, it's very particular in his references, which makes it sound very like simple. But you couldn't like, I don't know, if you had Prue Leith rather than Danny Baker, it wouldn't work. Do you see what I mean? It's like there's something about Danny Baker that works. And there's something about French and Saunders that just is really funny. And I I don't know what it is. What about, um, is it Idols? Where it's like Mary Berry's got a, you know, Tarquin's got a, a, I'm not going to, it's a a more uh, up-to-date reference, but using Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. kind of vibe. I can't, I can't, I can't argue with that, Sheree. <laughs> I know. I'm not we were, you don't have to. Um, while we were recording this, um, as you know, there's a Facebook group. And in the Facebook group at the moment, we were doing Half Man, Half Biscuit. Um, and so my entire last two weeks has been um, somebody going, and I ate Nera's shoes to some, to, uh, to screaming, sarcastic, bitter, to... Liverpudlian folk bitter. I mean, I, there's been a lot of sarcasm <laughs> in my music over the past two weeks, and I'm not sure that mentally I'm coming out of this. I don't. Um, well, I don't find half man half biscuit bitter though. I mean, it's caustic, but it's not bitter. Yeah, but there's a fine line between caustic and bitter, particularly when that's all you're listening to for two weeks. <laughs> True. Well, I mean, you know, full disclosure, I've been doing exactly the same thing. I've been listening to those two, yeah, McCluskey, Future of the Left, and Half Man Half Biscuit back to back for for two weeks now. And and it wasn't something I thought about before we started, but yes, there is a there's a quite a lot of crossover in uh, in the approach to writing songs, which is quite an interesting thing because it's obviously again very uh, seems to be quite a British thing that um, taking swipes at celebrities and things. And uh, but what I, what I really like um, on McCluskey Do Dallas, uh, I think that's one we're still on. <laughs> is, um, yeah, but, <laughs> but the, as a band, the, on the one hand, you got this sense of them never taking themselves too seriously. And yet, at the other time, there's this sort of palpable real anger that you know is rooted in real experience. You know, it's about the frustration of working in shitty jobs and, you know, having kind of um, like lacks of opportunities to do things you want, you want to do. And that, that sort of sense, I you think know, that's, that... I think that's key. But I, I worry, and we'll probably touch upon it in the next episode a bit. When you have bands, for example, whose first album is about how hard their life is or, or, or growing up on the streets or, or, or their real life experiences, usually by the fourth album, they've got a gospel choir in and they're singing songs about going out, going for a record company lunch because their references have changed. And it's yeah. going to be interesting to see whether or not they can keep this authenticity and anger going or whether it starts to become fake well, I, or whether things change. I don't think they were ever massively successful. So, you know, on the, on the positive side of that, it means that you don't get that. that they, uh, you know. Still not successful. Ah! This is also the first album I ever heard someone drop the C-bomb on. Love as well. that line. I don't think, I think that's a good line. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, have never, dropping the seat. Um, what is it? All of your friends are cunt. Your uh, mother, mother is a ballpoint pen thief. Pen thief, correct. Yeah. <laughs> and sorry to my mother for just dropping that word on here as well. And so. she's not a ballpoint pen thief either. Yeah, she's not. So we're going to move on to, oh, this was like when we did Yolo Tengo and I kept screwing up the album titles. And the difference between me and you is that I'm not on fire in 2004 
um, which sounds like a return to the first album a little bit in terms of sound, right? I mean, uh, for me anyway, they seem to be going somewhere or a, a certain direction with Do Dallas. And then this one sort of seems to go back a little bit, strips out or, or musically. Um, do you think there was a conscious choice in that? Am I wrong? I'm often wrong. Uh, I'm going to start with Nick T for this one, just because you're, you're sitting in the bottom right. Um, where, where does this album sit for you? I mean, do you, is there a change? Yeah, I think there is a change. And I think, I mean, I, I, I really, um, I know, I know that Dallas is sort of, is sort of the one, but I think there's lots and lots of really love on, on, on this album as well. And I, but, and I think part of it is kind of the more, uh, the, the, the perhaps slightly gentler moments that, that are perhaps a bit more reminiscent of the first album. I mean, think, things like She Will Only Bring You Happiness, which is just a really nice, uh, a really nice sort of like laid back, uh, laid back fuzzy, uh, fuzzy, rock, fuzzy rock pop song. Um, and but I mean I understand that so is there was this this was this was an album that they basically really struggled through to to make am I am I right am I right in saying that yeah, yeah. I think it was it was tumultuous would be yeah. the word I think is this the one because I was reading the I was reading some of um, Falco's uh, talk house pieces and I think this is the one that he refers to where he's actually got a he's he's got to, he's he's in chicago and he's actually got to he's got to call uh he's got to call his, the the record company and basically say there's no there's there's no album there's we are we're we're done we oh, we wow. yeah um we've we've spent we you you spent you know thousands and thousands of dollars on us but we've got we've we've, we've got nothing and it wasn't until that in it wasn't until they actually came back I, I hope I'm getting this right. It wasn't actually until they came back to the UK and got and got the and got the new drummer that they actually finally managed to finish finish this album. But it nearly it nearly broke the band basically, um, and I think that's it, it did break the band, didn't it? Yeah. Well, essentially, it did. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, while Nick was talking about the the idea of ringing the, the record company and going, we've got nothing, Cherie's face was horrified by the concept. And I'm thinking of having to have that conversation. <laughs> Is that right, Cherie? Uh, no, I just found that fascinating. I think there must have been so much, mm. much expectation after Do Dallas. And I can feel mm. that. It's like mm. that you know, coined phrase in every review of like you know, the jaded second album syndrome. And I know they had, a, you know, this was actually the third, mm. but I think because maybe do Dallas put that on people's maps and radars that this kind of, they had that expectation. Um, I had some fun trivia in context setting actually, when I was reading about this record, uh, cause I did get really deep into the idea of the early aughts and me being at sixth form and what this meant for them and Falcus and, um, elsewhere in music, so Muse are headlining Glastonbury, The Darkness are headlining Reading and Leeds. So this is giving you an idea of the other bands that are inverted commas successful at the moment. And there's an amazing quote um, from the Enemies editor at the time, Connor Mc uh, Nicholas, who admits he was reserving mag space for bands with good shoes and good hair. <laughs> yeah. Falcus doesn't really have hair, so. Yeah, I just, <laughs> I, I just can't process so this would that. So this would have been when the Libertines were coming through as well, right? So that would probably fit the same thought. Okay, I can sort of see how a music press at the time who was slavering over the next um, Pete Doherty uh, would ignore yeah. 
uh, a post-hardcore band from 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 South Wales. Um, Chris, I mean, where where does this sit for you in terms of their albums? I mean, for me, it's their it was it's their weakest one, but that's just me. I don't know anything. It is um, just you. About, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to put that fan. out there. <laughs> I yeah, I'd probably I wouldn't weakest is a that's quite a, a take that one. One, but I would say that I kind of see this one, the first one, kind of just on par, really. They're both so different to do Dallas. But I I don't know. Do I see them as maybe it's my second favorite? I'm gonna mm. go, I'm gonna put something out there. I think it's a mm. it's got just got so many great songs on it. And it's just I think it's major fall, fall is the that came after Do Dallas. If yeah. this was the album, this had come first, it would have I think mm. it would, you know, it would be as highly regarded, particularly because there's so many memorable lyrics there's so much going on it just struggles because after do dallas and i don't think anyone wants to come after do dallas so to speak do you know what i mean so <laughs> <laughs> so i think that um that's its major problem i think it's a great album but i do realize that when i first heard it i don't think i liked it as much because i was expecting do dallas which i think mm-hmm. isn't really it's just you wouldn't want it again do you know what I mean the album is perfect why would you want another version of it so I'm going to go with joint second of three. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> well, can I can I come out there and say that this is this is my favourite McCluskey album. Mm. Um, and I, but I think I think part of it is down to the fact that when I first listened through to the albums, I went into McCluskey Do Dallas with that pressure of expectation, which never really works well for me. I went in with mm. the kind of like you know, come on, Deb, uh, Debbie Do Dallas, McCluskey Do Dallas. God damn it, these titles! I can't say them. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> I went into McCluskey Do Dallas thinking, come on, impress me. And and I did like it, but I didn't have that pressure when I listened to the difference between you and me is that I'm not on fire. I can do that one. And um but but I don't know, I just enjoyed it a lot more. It's um I think it's a it's a slightly darker album. Um it's got a sort of slightly claustrophobic feel to it. It's sort of weird tension, but but I really like it. And again, so many great lyrics that just cover I mean this is true of all the albums, to be honest. And it's one of the things I love in Baz where there's just like Every time you listen, you're just hearing little lines that please you because they, they jump out at you. And and um, I think this goes back to what Ewan was saying earlier about listening to the albums and then not remembering the songs individually. I think part of the problem there is that sometimes in, in the, each two-minute song, there's usually about three or four songs happening. The, they go off and does little different refrains here and there. And so it's hard to actually remember what happens where. you just got all these fizzing ideas all over the place. And that that seems to happen throughout uh, McCluskey and uh, Future of the Left, I think. But anyway, my point is this is my favourite. But I think that's a good point there about like <laughs> the multiple things in one song. Like, they're a very different band, but if anyone knows the band um, Joyce Manor, I think, they've got, um, called, I think it's called Never Hung Over Again. They're like yeah, a yeah. contemporary pop-punk band. But you've got 20 minutes. I think it's 19 minutes, the whole album, actually. But there must be about three hours worth of songs in there. Do you know what I mean? Like some songs yeah. are a minute long and have four melodies, four, four choruses. But again, like you say, it's, it becomes, it's, like, it's quite overwhelming at some points because it's yeah. like, there's so many quotable things, there's so many things to remember. But yeah, well, there's going to a little refrain a... as an aside that you think would make a great mm. chorus for a whole song. Yeah. And it'll just be like a little, it almost uses a gag. Musical refrains as gags in uh, punk post-hardcore. I mean, this is... This, this, this is something that you don't really expect, is it? Um, Here's a question for you. In the song, She Will Only Bring You Happiness, the first line, is it, note to self, be a wreck by half past ten, or, note to self, be a wrecked by half past ten? <laughs> neither, 
I thought it was erect because there's quite a lot of hardened cocks in the, the whole discography. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, both uh, sort of. I, I mean, I'm not going to use that as the trailer, but I'd love to use that as the trailer. <laughs> and um, similarly, everywhere he looks, is there the band the darkness? Ooh. Or everywhere he looks, oh. is there sadness and misery as well? Ooh. Yeah, because I for a long time thought it was. Was the the band the darkness yeah. but then i listened to it a bit more yeah, yeah. and then when i listened to the, album, the whole thing i'm thinking i think it might be this kind of sadness i think he probably wanted yeah. both that would be very focused yeah. wouldn't it the, the... and i feel those two things are quite complicit yeah as well yeah. So, yeah, that. so. that's so funny but that that's like um, a typical Falcus lyric though is it because on the one hand it's just a flippant dig at, at celebrities and on the other it's sort of something existential and uh, dark Totally. Um, so, before we even move on to the next one, this is where shit goes wrong, right, Chris? I mean, the split. When what happens? I mean, you was it was it like Pete Doherty stealing all of the rest of the Libertine stuff and for for smack? It was something I mean, like that, though, wasn't it? It's close. I yeah. I don't know a great deal about close, it. Close. Yeah. yeah. I think there was obviously him, Falcus, and Chapel. I think fell out. There was a well bad blood between them it seems to be as well you're left with a band that's got three members and the next band's got two of them in so you're assuming that third one is the yeah the unpopular one but i also read somewhere but i'm not sure how true it is that there's events that happened to them in america where they lost loads of gear as well loads of gear was stolen and that supposedly was the beginning of this kind of tension but i don't actually know i don't know if nick t or sheree you know anymore but it seems to be there's like snippets of it that you get mm-hmm. from different interviews or wikipedia yeah, none of it you're entirely convinced or sure it's that but there was this event near the end where they were in america he talked about on the podcast actually which um glenn from the number girl pod um episode recommended to me where um they're in america they had loads of gear stolen from a van but the gear was all rented so they had to pay the debt back on all this for years they're in arizona somewhere so and then i read somewhere linking that event as being what then started this acrimony but i don't know that's all i know is they don't seem to get on is what the answer seems to be yeah okay right all of that could be a soap opera i've created as well so if i've just created the greatest indie soap opera then (laughs) tm back to me and i'll keep writing i'm sort of getting flashbacks to the fall episodes where almost every fall episode there seemed to be somebody talking about how they fell out on tour in america um there seems to be go to america and, it, and it, you either break America or it breaks you. Um, mm. Okay, so we went through that one. They've, they've sort of broken up. Um, and then we've got what I am going to say right at the point is one for the purists, but I did listen to the three, the three album singles, B-sides, C-sides, rarities, and live, thanks, Chris, McCluskeyism. Um, why did I listen to that, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to raise this. Yeah, it's an interesting point, though, isn't it? Because there's a lot to get through there, uh, which so apologies to all of you. You're all warriors. Um, but it does make you think about those kind of compilation albums. Some bands are better than others. Some bands go for maybe a stripped back B-side, so you go purist about it. So it's just, mm. it made me start mm. thinking about that. Do you, is this the approach to go for where I can't imagine there's much more than what's on these three discs? Mm. So again, I don't know. I think it's great. There is some... There's some um, one-timers in there. You probably listen to it once and never again. But I think there's a lot of strong stuff in there. 
is my feeling. I know it's long, but I think there's at least an, another great album in there if you were to clobble it all together. Is my feeling. Well, well, so, so we've got we've got the sing the fir- the first disc is let's see if I remember this correctly the singles more or less, and then we've got sort of B sides, and then we've got live and rarities or by rarities I I did write the word, but color march is garbage on my piece of paper. <laughs> it is it's fucking garbage. But but uh, it's I, I mean as I, I, what you were saying about how they approach a compilation is interesting. Um, you can have a best of that is here's 12 tracks, some singles plus some album tracks, or you can have here's a bunch of, here's all our B-sides Carter, USM, USM used to do that all the time, here's our B-sides or here's a live album um, all three is not what I've seen before well, you know, they always kicked against the convention, mate, that's what it is you know what I mean? um, I'm, interested, I'm interested to ask other people who are probably listening through or probably getting into going through McCluskey as a first or second uh, time. Um, for me, this album feels like the album you want if you really know McCluskey. And it's a perfect album to really dive in and go, that's amazing. I know all these little things. For somebody who was coming through on a first or second listen, um, I've got Nick T here. I mean, McCluskeyism, I mean, how does that fit for someone who's not already a massive fan, do you think? Mm, yeah, I mean, I can't quite believe it's it, the album's actually finished in my house. I'm pretty, I feel like it's still going some somewhere. <laughs> uh, it's, um, but uh, no, I mean, I, I, that's that's not necessarily a comment on 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 the quality of it. I did I did I did enjoy uh, I did enjoy a lot more of it than I than I was expecting to. Even though, yes, uh, as as someone who's as someone who's coming for, uh, coming approaching this not as a full fan uh the 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 idea of uh the idea of over two and a half hours worth of uh sort of off cuts and rarities didn't uh didn't didn't hugely excite me but i think but um but but you know there are there are some things and first of all um like you mentioned on the slap chris i mean clearly uh this is a band that uh that really uh that are just absolutely on a whole different level live uh and um, so that and so we we go some way to getting a little uh, a little insight uh, into this. The, the live tracks are just so raw and exciting, um, and um, uh, and it also just made me just miss the concept of a B side though in general because like B sides don't really exist anymore, do they? The, that's we 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 get we get artists like. Um, we get artists like Drake like knocking out uh, knocking out a new sort of mixtape um, every every other every other week, um, and it seems so. We still have this idea of artists just sort of unloading uh, whatever they've got, kind of down like down the back of the sofa and, and and putting it up on Spotify. But this this idea of these being like some special tracks that you'll only hear if you really dive into the the singles is sort of, it's kind of a, a a lost art, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, some some of my favourite bands, particularly you know, you know, not as a '90s kid, an early '90s kid, there were songs that were non-album, non-album singles, which sounds bizarre even as a concept, and then non-album singles with B-sides, and that B-side was gorgeous. And sometimes, some of the some of the greatest stuff by some bands that I hold dear is that B-side of that non-album 12-inch in between their second and third album. I mean, there's also the sort of slightly pretentious muso in me that that likes to pretend that that's the case as well. Um, yeah. Cherie, um, McCluskeyism, 
over overwrought and, and too baggy or an essential dive into a band's canon? Ooh. There's only two options. Yeah, I do like <laughs> very binary. Um, I think it's interesting what you we were just saying there about being a 90s nerd, loving a B-side rarities. I think that's sort of the essence of it, isn't it? That like, it's almost a reward. Like if you are, it's what we said with the SG as well. It's that very sort of, stalwart i love this band they've got this real you know sort of strong underground support system that's going to come and help them release a few more records in the future and i guess that's what they were giving them because this is in the wake of them uh breaking so for me if i had you know if i'd been in that time going through that breakup with falcus i would be all over this You know, you'd be pouring over it. So, and I'm with Nick T in the live section because I never saw them live. I want to see them live now. When he rips that guy for shouting at the drummer, (laughs) as someone who was in control of the mic, I loved it. Loved, loved, loved. Was that the the one with the tool t-shirt? Is that the the story? He's the one that makes a comment about the drummer. Why does your drummer play? Um, and then he's just like, you're the only one that's paid for a ticket. Everyone else here is on the guest list. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Schooled. I think um, the other interesting thing about it is, is that the A-side one has There Ain't No Fallen Ferguson and Dress for Success on I it. which are, that track. I mean, they might be two of the greatest non-album tracks ever yeah. written by any band, if I'm going to use polemic yeah. tonight. Uh, but also I think <laughs> that what I noticed more, because... I hadn't actually listened to it a lot since it came out. I listened to it bits and bobs over the year, but because there's so much going on, and my friend did criticise it for this, there's so many different styles, but there are a few styles on it which didn't really come into McCluskey, but you can hear in Future mm-hmm. the Left, like yeah. the kind of spoken word on Dave Stop Killing Prostitutes, uh, Provincial Songs, got this weird kind of like, um, almost like, not hip-hop's not the right word, but a weird kind of odd rhythm to it, which they definitely would do again later. And I think one of the songs mm-hmm. actually has... A section that's in a future left song. I think it's mm. um, uh, Viva. Mm. I think Viva, the bit, it's like the wave, wave, wave bit, which comes out later, is exactly the same huh. bit. So there's kind of these experiments which you would see later, I think is what's interesting about it when you when you go back to it. I and mean, there is, as someone said, there is some honkers on it, you know, but you'd expect that, wouldn't you? But I think there are, and I also think one that's worth mentioning is, um, I think it's Balbo's song. Because really right. in the Falco, mm history you don't really get tenderness is not a word you would associate with him but i would say balbo's song is the nearest you get to that it's got that lyric about i think it's something like um your head's too close to the window and it's really poignant and i just think that's a really great song and it's a side that you arguably don't hear very much mm. again so there's these moments of him experimenting with different things i i do think i mean obviously i listen to it digitally and if, as Cherie said, if I'd gone through this breakup and gone through this band and felt probably ownership, as fans do, particularly of bands that are not successful, they're your band, you love them, you'd, you'd, you'd want this on vinyl, right? This is not something mm. you want to go, oh, look, Spotify has these, oh, it's three discs. Oh, okay. Um, no, you want this on vinyl. This is the one you still, this is the one you keep. This is the one you go, look what I got. And then you bore your friends by playing the live tracks five times and they go, yeah, I get it. You really like McCluskey. Yeah, it's a really nice box. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, um, I think another thing I noticed, listen to the B-sides, and it's been alluded to earlier, and I can't believe I never noticed it, is I, I'm going to get shot down for this. I don't think at the time I realised just how much some of it sounds like the Pixies. I just yeah. didn't notice it mm. at the time. But, yeah. you know, it's like, I think it's med- medium is the message um, wrote on this. Sounds exactly like the Pixies. But I don't know if it was 
I think someone else in this in a previous podcast, Pixies are a band to me that I think, well, they're nice. You know, my friends like them, yeah. but I've never There's gone like girl. full deep on it. So again, I think I had a distance where I didn't make that association mm-hmm. because they weren't beloved to me. But yeah, they're definitely ripping off Pixies a few times. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite fun. impressed we got this far into the podcast before anyone mentioned the fact that they sound like the Pixies. I was playing a game with myself. Mm. I was trying to not mention it. So it went up more. <laughs> um, well, that is probably a perfect time to wrap up this episode on McCluskey. Um, we're not leaving the story there. We are going to be coming back next week and seeing what happens uh, moving forward with Future of the Left. Um, Chris, thank you ever so much for uh, your curation. I hate the word curation. Your introductions. It's all right. I work in a museum. It's fine. You can use curation. It's fine. Oh, perfect. Thank you ever so much for your curation of these curated things. Um, Cherie, fantastic having you back. A delight as always. Um, Nick T, not Nick H, Nick T. (laughs) Thank you Um, so much for having me. um, Nick, we'll we'll see them all later, though. See you next time. Bye. We really need to nail that goodbye bit one day. Thank you to everybody who made this show possible. Christopher Whitby for his passionate introductions to the albums of McCluskey, Music writer Sharia Moore for returning to the show again despite the technical difficulties that beset our ESG episode, and to Nick Taylor, whose My Teenage Band podcast is a real joy. I particularly recommend going all the way back to Season 1, Episode 1, in order to hear today's guest Sheree, along with past guest Fliss Kitson of the Nightingales, talking about their teenage band, the phenomenal Violet Violet. That's My Teenage Band. Go and check it out. Thanks also to my indefatigable co-host Ewan, and to Jonathan Fisher for his glorious synthy theme tune. Embarking as we are on our third season, we've also decided to launch a Patreon, which you'll find at patreon.com slash tempfans. It offers several ways to support the show, from the smallest gesture through to fully-fledged season sponsorship. Me and Ewan wearing shirts with your branding on, think about it. If that's not your thing, just leave us a review or give us a little nudge on social media, it all helps. See you again next week when we dive into Andrew Falkus' next band, Future of the Left. Until then, I'm Nick Hilditch, and my band is better than your band. We've got more songs and a song convention. Sing it.